3: Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're investigating the rare case of someone changing their mind. In this case, it's journalist Mark Linus and his journey from anti-GMO activist to pro-GMO advocate. When it was pointed out to me that um, I was
4: getting my science wrong on this really important issue, I had to just go back to, you know, go back to school and do some reading, read those peer-reviewed papers, and I found out that there was a scientific consensus that uh, GMOs were safe as any other foods, um, and that scientific
3: consensus was just as strong as the scientific consensus that global warming is real. Also coming up, we present a recipe for Thai grilled pork skewers at home, and later Dan Pashman gets strategic about all-you-can-eat buffets. But first, it's my interview with Melissa Clark and Victoria Scott about their book, Dictators' Dinners, A Bad Taste Guide to Entertaining Tyrants. Melissa and Victoria, welcome to Milk Street.
5: Thank you. Thanks. Very glad to be here.
3: Pleasure having you. So Dictator's Dinner is a bad taste guide to entertaining tyrants. Uh, I've seen a lot of cookbooks and a lot of culinary books come out over the years, but uh, this was a new one for me. So let's just start. Uh, how did you get the idea?
5: Melissa and I have got a lot in common. We, um, in fact, went to the same school ages ago, oddly, and have the same sense of humor and have traveled a lot and found that we'd both lived under sort of dictatorship conditions in different countries, me in Romania, Melissa more in uh, Iraq. And um, it came out of that.
3: You know, there, there are themes here, as you know better than I do. But what, one of the themes is some of these quote unquote dictators liked really simple food. Uh, Mussolini like a bowl of chopped garlic with lemon and oil, although his wife was not fond of that. Salazar from Portugal, like grilled sardines with black eyed peas. Saddam Hussein, camel milk with bread and honey, Gaddafi, like couscous with camel meat. Some of these people love the food of their childhood, and that was very simple peasant food, right?
5: That's right. I, there's also a factor. These guys like to be seen as um, people of the people, as it were. They wanted to have their humble origins celebrated and uh, respected and um, so that people felt closer to them and more prepared to follow them. And uh, so it was good to talk up, you know, how you just love the old peasants' food and nothing fancy for you, thanks very much. That that played a part, I think.
3: The other theme, one of the other themes that runs through the book is poisoning, uh, the fear of being poisoned. And some of these folks went to extraordinary lengths, especially when they traveled, to avoid that possibility. Could you talk about a few of those?
6: So Saddam Hussein... He got his food cooked in 20 palaces, three meals, so no-one knew where he was going to be eating on one particular day or time. Hmm. He also had food tasters and nuclear scientists checking
5: his food. And then in Europe, there was the Ceausescu's, I think. Ceausescu was particularly uh, paranoid about um, cleanliness and having all his food tested by a special department of the secret police, the Securitate um, traveled with him everywhere and whenever he couldn't actually check his food, um, for example, he was at a state banquet given by a, a host, he would um, take a mouthful and then just sort of discreetly put it into his napkin, then just sort of kick it away under the table as far off from him as possible, just just in case it had been poisoned.
3: And everyone thinks being a dictator is such a good gig. <laughs> So Mao was a pretty interesting character, to say the least. On very long train journeys, he'd have live fish uh, kept at the ready. Uh, and he also sometimes actually fell asleep during dinner because he took sleeping pills before dinner.
6: And then when he fell asleep at the table while eating, he um, got someone to fish out the food from his mouth. So um, Great. one of his servants would have to do that. I mean, I can't imagine what it would have been like just to even sit and watch him I mean, or, or be near him. He was probably the most revolting of all the dictators in our book.
3: I I thought that that Salazar from Portugal, actually, of all these people, uh, from a culinary point of view, seemed to be the most appealing. He had a very simple menu. He he was a loner. He ate by himself. Um, I
5: don't know. Does that that soup made of turkey bones appeal to you? I could do without that one.
3: Well, I didn't say I liked his his menu. (laughs) I, I just thought he stuck to who he was. You know, he his image of himself he was very rigorous and uh had a lot of self he was more of a monk than yes, a, yes, that's what I a mean.
5: politician yes. yeah he, he he was really ascetic in all his yeah. habits and his strange housekeeper checking all the food for him uh, yeah quite a, quite a scene there
3: kim jong il now to go to the opposite of asceticism you said he had a cellar of 10000 bottles of wine and he'd buy half a million pounds of the finest cognac for his personal use each year from Hennessy, is that right?
6: Yeah, he was uh, Hennessy's biggest customer for a long time. And he was probably our biggest foodie in the cookbook. He had masses of um, cookbooks in his palaces or whatever, and um, sent his ambassadors, uh, got them to bring back delicacies from all over the world. And sent his personal chef to go and collect things from all over the world, like uh, Iranian caviar, Thai mangoes, things like that. And he really, really did love the finer foods and obviously while the rest of his country was starving.
3: Stalin, of course. Uh, Another little fact in your book that was surprising. Putin's grandfather was Joseph Stalin's favorite chef. Is that right?
5: Yes. Again, (laughs) I was surprised by that. And... uh, Also, uh, another thing I I very much liked about learning about Stalin was that uh, somebody said that probably... I think his successor, I think Khrushchev, said nobody who's had so much power spent more time just eating and drinking than Stalin, which is quite a thought. And he certainly did do an awful lot of this feasting and um, being out in the countryside uh, with his favourite henchmen. But, of course, you know, these... These feasts were all about politics, and he used them as sort of to terrorize his his people, f- forcing them to get ridiculously drunk. <laughs> the, the whole subject was actually very revealing of aspects of these people. Uh, the, the easy thing to do is to say these are these are monsters, you know, nothing human about them, but actually viewed from these angles, they're incredibly human. I mean, I found it fascinating, for example, that Mao was very worried about European style of toilets and couldn't relieve himself all the time he was on a trip to Russia or something. That Those kind of things, they really give you an insight of sort of people's neuroses. Uh, and Hitler kind of always... Um, wolfing down his food and bringing up really unpleasant subjects at meal times like talk of what was going on in a Ukrainian abattoir while he was having lunch just suddenly you get a spotlight and you think oh yeah that that makes sense that adds up and and um, I, I found that actually quite a useful exercise really in the end it was of course it started as a rather good joke you know let's Let's have history as well as cookery. Can't fail with a book like that. But um, we learned a lot between us.
3: Uh, Melissa and Victoria, thank you so much for joining us at Milk Street.
5: Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you so much.
3: That was Melissa Clark and Victoria Scott, authors of Dictators' Dinners, A Bad Taste Guide to Entertaining Tyrants. Right now, it's time to take your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television.
7: Hi, Sarah. Hello, Chris.
3: First, I have a question for you, Sarah. This is about how you dress in the kitchen.
7: Oh, dear. So,
3: do you use any kind of an apron or smock? And is it very restaurant-y? What does it look like? Wow. That's... I know it's a little personal.
7: But... No, 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 it's Okay. Two things I do, I must do, or my hands don't work. One is to put my hair in a ponytail and make sure all of my hair is out of my face. The second one is I must wear an apron. And I my favorite apron is a Brigard. They make chef's jackets, too. They're out of France. And they make the apprentice's aprons. It's the ones that Julia hmm. used to love. They're these blue aprons oh, that yeah. are very long. Is that
3: French blue? Yeah. yeah.
7: And I love it because it's the only thing that covers my rear end. You know, so when you're cooking, particularly when you're baking or dealing with flour, you get flour all over your hands and you sort of go, whoosh, right. you put them on the, your rear end. And suddenly you've got flour marks all over you. So I like to sort of keep that part of me covered. So that's my favorite apron. And I, the plainer, the better. I'm not into frilly. It's so just na- not functional.
3: So now you've given me a hint on what to buy you.
7: Oh, yes, I'd like that. <laughs> To
3: go online tonight. Yes. Okay, time for some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
2: Hi, this is Josh from Chicago.
3: Hi, Josh. How are you?
2: I am doing fantastic. Good.
3: How can we help you?
2: Well, I'm calling because I am trying to up my spice game. I uh, have, for such a long time, had the typical spices, my salt, my peppers. Maybe on occasion I'll go crazy and have some dried oregano or cumin. So I thought I would actually kind of break the mold this year and try and build out that spice rack that's been for too long empty. And I'm just trying to figure out... How does a guy kind of build out the spices and, you know, where does he start? And what are some of the more interesting spices that one should have in their repertoire? Well,
3: I'll give you five or six spices I think you should get. You mentioned cumin and coriander. You should definitely have those. I would have them ground and whole seeds. A lot of recipes I use them whole or you toast them whole in a skillet for a couple minutes and then grind them up and you get lots more flavor. For pepper, Aleppo pepper and Urfa pepper, Aleppo is particularly useful. It's a little fruity. It's hot. It's used in a lot of recipes around the Middle East. A Smoked paprika. You can use water, old bread, and some garlic and make a soup with smoked paprika. <laughs> it's great. Uh, turmeric, <laughs> I assume you have around, but make sure you have that. And then two others, sumac, which is uh, lemony and sour at the same time. It's used a lot in Middle Eastern cooking. And the Mm -hmm. last would be Sichuan peppercorns because they give you that sort of numbing experience in the mouth, which is really unique and is used in a lot of cooking. So cumin, coriander, cardamom, aleppo, smoked paprika, turmeric, sumac, Sichuan peppercorns. That's more than five, but that's my list. All right.
7: Josh, what are you
3: going to be cooking?
2: Well, I traditionally cook mostly stews. So I'm trying to break out of that
3: mold. I'd have two suggestions. Saute the onions with some oil, cook them, and add the spices with the onions at the beginning to develop some flavor. So no matter what Uh-oh. spices you use, don't just throw everything in. And you can use a cold pan with cold oil and put the onions in, and then add your cumin or coriander, whatever you want, and develop that for seven or eight minutes. Secondly, when you're finished with your dish, take a little bit of oil, just like grapeseed oil, it could be your olive oil. Take a little bit of spice, like an Aleppo pepper, would work or you could use turmeric or whatever you want and infuse that on top of the uh, stove just warm up the oil with the pepper in it for a couple minutes and then drizzle it over each serving when you serve it it's called tarka it's t-a-r-k-a it's used in indian cooking those two things should up your game substantially because you get a lot more flavor at the beginning and at the end
7: Well, I agree with cooking things in oil and also finishing with spices as well. But I would love for you to learn the flavor profile of each one of these spices. So I'd almost say take one at a time and cook it in a little oil and taste it and see how you like it.
2: This is a new concept for me, a flavor profile. Well, this is wonderful.
7: Well, I hope you have a lot of fun with this.
2: I'll now feel less intimidated when I walk down that spice aisle.
7: Oh, you should. Don't yeah, worry about take it. Take charge. Yes.
3: Throw your shoulders back. <laughs> yes, yeah. Josh. Look forward. <laughs> yes. March on. Okay. Thanks for going. All
7: right. Thank you. Thank you very yeah. much. Okay. Take care. Bye bye.
3: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
8: This is Mary Joe.
3: Hi, Mary Joe. Where are you calling from?
8: Uh, Minneapolis.
3: Uh, how can we help you?
8: I'm having problems with a blueberry recipe.
3: A blueberry bread.
8: Yes. It's a quick bread, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just, uh, it ca- I cannot get it to not sink in the middle. And I've tried quite a few different things, but I'm thinking maybe it doesn't have enough leavener in it. Originally, the recipe called for a cup of sugar and a cup of flour. So I reduced the amount of sugar thinking that might help, but that didn't seem to do it. I've tried a couple of different things, but... I need some ideas. The recipe is so tasty.
3: So, what what else is in it? What are the other ingredients? The major ingredients?
8: There's a four ounces of cream cheese, and uh, I usually do about a cup of blueberries. There's an egg, cup of flour. I put three quarters cup of sugar, half a stick of butter, uh, and then egg, and then teaspoon um, of baking powder, and a quarter teaspoon of salt.
3: When you use the, did you ever use the full cup of sugar and then reduced it? Did that change things when you reduced the sugar?
8: No, it didn't. I thought it would because I was kind of trying to read, and I thought, well, maybe it's got you know too much sugar or something in it, and it didn't seem to make a difference. It still just doesn't seem to want to puff up. I made every other kind of quick bread, and I've never had a problem like this. It comes out okay in muffins, but it's just not as moist as the loaf usually is. So.
7: My friend Jeannie Anderson wrote this cookbook called "The Doubleday Cookbook." She had this section in there about what goes wrong with cakes, and I seem to remember when, you know, about cakes collapsing in the center, that it was usually either too much sugar, you already sensed that, or too much yeah. fat. But I also had yeah. another question, however, you're not having this problem with your other quick breads, so it's probably not the issue, which is, do you know that your baking powder is fresh?
3: Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's yeah. not the no, problem. No, I, I think you nailed it. I think there's not enough flour. You have a cup of flour, three-quarter cup of sugar. You got a cup of blueberries. You got cream cheese. You got butter. You got You egg. got six ounces of fat. Yeah, I think you've got too much fat to flour. Oh, okay. I would up the flour by at least a quarter cup or a third cup and see okay. if that does it. The reason the muffin's not a problem is because you have less volume, and therefore the structure will work better than in a big loaf pan. But I think there's just too much fat in this to flour. My so maybe reading just of the a recipe, tiny bit more flour and yeah, keep everything the
7: same, you're saying?
3: Yeah, I would give that a shot. I okay. think another quarter to third cup should solve it.
8: Okay, I've got some blueberries in my refrigerator.
7: I'll give it a shot tomorrow morning. Okay, and Mary Jo, please let us know how it goes. We, we need to hear back. Did that work?
3: Do. But, I mean, if it doesn't work, then don't bother. No,
7: don't call us. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs>
3: no. No, please do let us know because yeah, we'd be interested.
7: Yeah, we'd like to know. And we're rooting for you.
8: Sounds good. All okay. right. Mary Jen, All thanks. Right. Thanks for your help. Yeah. Bye bye.
3: This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to answer your questions. Please give us a ring, 855 426 9843. That's 855 426 9843. Or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
2: Hi, Howard Breslaw calling.
3: Is that the Howard Breslaw that I know, or is this a different Howard Breslaw?
2: It is, Chris. It sounds
3: it <laughs> like... Oh, so now you're going to ask me a really embarrassing question, right? Is that why? I'm going no, to enjoy I would never this. I will <laughs> just sit back. We'll see. <laughs> Howard,
7: how can we help you? Make it very Hello, difficult. Sarah. Hello, and do address it right to Chris. Put him on the hot okay. seat. Okay. Please.
2: So we'll get right to it. Uh, a lot has been swirling around recently about the proper way to grill meat. Much of this has come from a meathead, Goldwyn, who uh-huh. advocates roasting in an oven and then finishing on a grill. Can you put some science behind the meat grilling debate and put it to rest? See what What, I did there?
3: Yeah. um, This is a softball. Thank you. My editor was just in Argentina. And they cook meat over a warm fire. I mean, you could put your hand right over it for 15 seconds and it wouldn't bother you. And they cook it for like an hour. And then they finish it over a sear. The theory is this. If you cook a steak or meat over very low heat, it's evenly cooked from the outside in.
7: So you have more rare or medium rare or whatever you're trying to
3: achieve. as Meathead says, what happens is it's not the heat cooking the inside of the meat. It's the outside of the meat that gets hot. And then that radiates heat to the inside of the meat. So if you use Mm -hmm. high heat, the outside absorbs a lot of energy and gets overcooked by the time the inside comes up to temperature. So you start with low heat, mostly cook it. And then at the very last few minutes, you cook it in a skillet or over a high heat just to get a nice sear. The other thing that happens is you get sort of turbo aging. Once the meat gets mm-hmm. in that 75, 80 degree to 100 degree range, you actually get flavor development. I've done a taste tests where you can actually taste the difference. So if you put a thick steak in an oven for half an hour or 40 minutes at 250 degrees, you are sort of aging the meat.
2: Traditionally, the reason I guess we all cooked. One of the reasons that many people have advocated for grilling is to seal in the juices, right?
3: Searing does nothing to seal in the juices. I mean, it's not a bag of water that's going to leak out unless you sear the outside. (laughs) The only reason that liquid leaves is because the muscle proteins tighten, they twist and they shorten, and the water gets Mm -hmm. pushed out. And that's an entirely a function of internal temperature. It has nothing to do with the outside at all. The other thing is, you know, if you cook chicken, I do it over very low heat, for a long period of time, and you get a great browning on the crust. You're talking
7: about what kind of chicken? Like
3: a spatchcock chicken on a grill. Okay. Cook it very low heat, and you will find... Meat side
7: down, skin side down? Both. Okay, flip it.
3: It turns out you can get a great crust with low heat with time. Right. And you don't have to worry about it burning, and you don't have to worry about flipping it constantly. I think it's a great way to cook chicken as well.
7: Oh, I like that. So. Yeah.
2: Same temperature.
3: Well, this would be an outdoor, I just put it on medium-low on a grill, and then maybe grill, next right. to it you can also have the grill on medium-high. Or the other thing you can do is if it's a three-part gas grill, the center is off and the two sides are on medium-high. You know, you're almost roasting it with indirect heat, mm. I would say. Great. You didn't think you'd get this much excitement, did you? Oh, no,
2: this is exactly what I was hoping to get, and I'm delighted to uh, get this uh, detailed answer.
3: Yeah, start, it, start a steak, a thick steak, in a 250 oven, and then finish it on the grill or a skillet. Thank okay. you so much. All right, Howard. Howard, good Thanks. to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with Mark Linus, author of Seeds of Science, Why We Got It So Wrong on GMOs. That's coming up in just a moment.
0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com boast.
3: You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mostly Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Journalist Mark Linus was once a staunch advocate against genetically modified foods. He even went so far as to destroy genetically modified crops with a machete. But then Linus changed his mind. In his latest book, Seeds of Science, Linus recounts his journey from anti-GMO activist to pro-GMO advocate. Mark, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks. It's great to be with you. So before we get into your change of heart about GMO, let's start with a simple definition of genetic engineering and how it applies to plants.
4: Oh, okay. Um, I I love the science stuff. Um, So GMO or genetic engineering normally means um, having had DNA from a different species inserted into the genome of the target organism. So to give you an example, there's corn, which is pest resistant in order to avoid being eaten by insects. And that carries a new gene, which has been brought over from a soil bacterium. So normally you can't interbreed a corn plant and a soil bacterium. So they just do it by shifting across a single gene. And that's what genetic engineering is.
3: Yeah, I read in your book that someone said, if you want a long banana, you can pick a gene from a snake and put it into a banana so that the banana becomes the length of a snake. <laughs> so it doesn't quite work that way, does it? Uh, no, <laughs> no, not quite as simple as that, but a lot of people
4: are just scared of this. It seems unnatural for genes from a fish to be in a strawberry, which is another one that you hear about a lot. It um, doesn't exist because there's not been any reason to put fish genes into a strawberry, but you can do it, and the protein that the gene codes for in the fish will also come out in the strawberry. Um, in some ways, it's kind of beautiful that all living organisms share the same informational mechanism which is DNA. I mean we are all from a common original ancestor back when life was invented and that's why genes can work in all the different organisms whether they're fungi, plants, animals, bacteria, whatever. It's actually a, a natural process that um scientists have harnessed in order to do genetic engineering. You know, it's not like they have a pair of tiny scissors and snip a piece of DNA and stick it in there. Um, It's actually done through something called agrobacterium, which is a a bacterium which actually exists in nature and puts its DNA into plants. And so they just take out the gene that the bacteria will put in stick the one in that they want, and the bacteria does the rest. So it's actually sort of harnessing a,
3: a natural process that's been going on for millions of years already. So how do you identify the source of DNA to solve a problem with a plant? So, for example, if you're growing eggplant in Vietnam and you want it to be able to grow in wetter, more humid conditions than it normally does, how would you figure out where to go to get the proper DNA to modify that plant?
4: Well, that's actually a good question, and it's quite a long and complex process. Um, That has been done in rice, for example, to make rice which is flood-tolerant. So that, um, you know, if the fields are flooded for too long, then the rice, rather than dying off, would be able to survive. And you do that through trying to find something out there, which is hopefully as close as possible to rice. So some other type of grass, perhaps, or even a close relative of rice, which can survive being flooded. And then you try and figure out what the genes are. Um, so you then, you know, you knock out one or two genes and you say, OK, this is still working. Isn't it working? And then eventually, when you've got the DNA sequence that you want, you clone it, you take it out of the donor organism, if you like, and use this agrobacterium to stick it into the
3: target organism. So all of a sudden, well, actually over 30 years, um, there was a lot of anti-GMO sentiment. Jeremy Rifkin was maybe the one person who, who was most responsible for this. So let's just talk about the perceived threat. And a quote from him is that genetic research is going to bring us one step closer to genetic engineering that's where they tell us to produce ideal children. And the last time that happened, they had blue eyes, blonde hair, and Aryan genes. So th- is this notion of GMO being a science that could get out of control, destroy mankind, or put us into an Orwellian future, does that have any basis in fact? And why has that been so successful?
4: Well, no, there's no basis in, in fact, but there's basis in fiction. And it's a cultural meme, which, as you can see, going back through the ages. I mean, think of Dr. Frankenstein's monster. Right. And the whole point of that story that Mary Shelley wrote in that long dark summer was a- about science getting out of control and human agency, human technological power um, running rampant and creating this awful thing, which was uncontrollable. And that kind of Thinking, I think, pervades a lot of the, the GMO issue. And I remember when Prince Charles back in the 90s said he was against genetic engineering because that was humans intruding in you know where, where only God should go.
3: What is the, is the real world concern about GMOs? In other words, within the realm of, of practical reason, what could go wrong with GMO plants?
4: I mean, there was an example where I think a Brazil nut gene was taken and put into soybean, and that then made the soybean allergenic. And I mean, it was never commercialized or anything, but it was a kind of proof of concept that that, that, that could be done and, and there should be caution. So yes, yes, things can go wrong. I mean, you could potentially cause a mutation and it could potentially have some other impact as well, but they're not, the thing is they're not qualitatively different from the kinds of things that can happen when you're just doing conventional crossbreeding either. I mean, genes are moving, shuttling around all the time when, when these things happen. So the thing is that the GMO issue is no different from, in terms of its risks than any other form of crop breeding, and, but it has been perceived as being so because of this idea that it's unnatural and it's playing God and all of these other kinds of things.
3: So you were very much anti-GMO, and you said, in 2008, I was still penning screeds in The Guardian attacking the science of GMOs. So you went from anti-GMO to the other side. How did you get to the other side?
4: Well, it was a long process. And that's why the main reason I I wrote the book was to try and explain what that conversion process was about. You know, it's another of these narratives that we all have is the sort of road to Damascus conversion, you know, the light bulb moment. Uh, And people often ask me about that. What was the light bulb moment? And actually, the closest thing I had was after having written the Guardian article you just referenced, and some of the comments underneath made the point and they were obviously written by scientists that i was effectively being anti-science and and that hit home to me because i was a science writer and i'd written books on climate change and i prided myself in getting my science right and you know wh- when it was pointed out to me that um i was getting my science wrong on this really important issue um i had to just go back to you know go back to school and do some reading read those peer review papers and i found out that um there was a scientific consensus that uh, GMOs were safe as any other foods. And that scientific consensus was just as strong as the scientific consensus that global warming is real. So having been somebody who went out there saying global warming is real and you've got to listen to the scientists, I couldn't then say GMOs are bad and you should ignore the scientists.
3: But, but anti-GMO sentiment is fairly widespread, yet most reasonable people accept global warming. What is it about GMO that's so different? I'll give you multiple choice. This is big ag, big agriculture, and somehow they, they think big agriculture is putting something over on us. Or is it this, this scientific fantasy about this post-apocalyptic world where there's massive crop failures and they're just, it's more science fiction than science fact? Um, I think the primary factor is the
4: naturalistic fallacy, which is the idea that genetic engineering is unnatural and therefore it must have some bad effect on your health or on your kid's health or something like that. I mean, if we could get past the whole GMO safety issue, then I think we could have a sensible conversation about the politics, like about Big Ag or about Monsanto or about, you know, what's the best way to feed the world. But until we can park all the safety scare stuff, I don't think it's possible to have a serious conversation about GMOs, and that's why we're in this situation. I think a lot of the political arguments are made as a kind of cover for the fact that a lot of the people are just horrified by the idea of having a snake gene in a banana. you know, Would you eat a banana with a snake gene in? Of course. Well, so would I, but I bet 95% of people wouldn't. These things are intuitive. They're emotional. People don't get that a DNA sequence doesn't matter where, whether it's in a snake or a banana. It does the same thing.
3: G- give us a sense of some of the potential benefits over the next 10 years or so of GMOs. In other words, are we on the cusp of creating plants that really could feed more people or solve real problems?
4: Well, it would be great to use this technology in a way which benefited the world's poor predominantly. And I'm working at Cornell University with the Cornell Alliance for Science, where we mostly work in Africa. We also do some work in Bangladesh, but trying to help empower the scientists in those countries to get past this anti-GMO fearmongering, which has been blocking them so far from being able to take any of these products out to farmers. So in Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, I've visited all these countries and they've got drought-tolerant corn pretty much ready to go. And yet it's being blocked because the, the fear-mongering has, has convinced the politicians to, to ban it in all
3: the different countries. What, what about the economics of this? I assume the big ag, uh, the people producing this GMO seeds, it's almost like it's like having a patent or a trademark on something it allows them like like a drug, right? So it would allow them to charge a lot more money because they have a patented seed. Is that what's driving this? And does this mean that food would be an, more expensive in the future than it is today?
4: Well, we can answer that question because it's been grown. I mean, cotton, corn, soy have been 90% genetically engineered since the mid-90s in the United States and in, well, in South America as well. As that made food for all of us more expensive. Not not that I could see. I mean, the issues of big ag and about sustainability of, of farming are real, but in many ways, genetic engineering ha- has been used to improve them. Um, there's less pesticide, less insecticide being used on, on world crops, thanks to GMOs. And like I say, it would be good also to not forget that these aren't all corporate crops. Um, the drought-tolerant corn, I was just mentioned in, in Africa, is philanthropically supported by the um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, and, and USAID as well, by the way. So it's your taxpayer dollars that are going to to help that too. And that's there to promote food security in countries. So if you block it, well, then people are going to go hungry.
3: So do you come away from this with a renewed interest in and appreciation for human psychology?
4: Well, <laughs> it's it's certainly enduringly fascinating. Um there's actually a peer-reviewed paper that was published recently about my conversion story and how effective that is as a communications tool. So I'm actually now an object of social science studies myself, which is quite interesting. <laughs> um, what they were trying to ask the the subjects was, does, does the conversion story work? And it actually did work. It didn't make them see me as more credible as a person, but it did make them say, well, if he's changed his mind about something important, then maybe I should look again at the facts. So it is an important way to communicate, to tell people when you change your mind. And, you know, it was, it was very difficult for me a, a few years ago. You know, I lost a lot of friends and things like that. But I'm now in a much better position, I think, because I stuck to the thing that really mattered, and that was the scientific truth.
3: Mark, thanks for joining us at Milk Street. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it. That was Mark Linus. His latest book is entitled Seeds of Science, Why We Got It So Wrong on GMOs. The scientific revolution substituted external observation for trust in the power of the mind. It discarded the wisdom of the past for faith in the better future. But the big surprise is that in the 20th century, the scientific revolution started coming under attack. Now, that may have started with the Great Depression, which undermined faith in a technological economy... Or maybe it was the two world wars. Scientific advancements caused the death of millions. But today, in the 21st century, faith in science is at an all-time low. Facts are ignored in favor of feelings. Yet history does tell us that feelings kill more people than facts. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Thai Grilled Pork Skewers. Lynn, how are you?
0: I'm great, Chris.
3: As you know, things on skewers, uh, pork, chicken, etc., are very popular, really almost all over the world at this point. Thailand is well known for this, with pork skewers, uh, with some coconut milk dipping sauce. I liked them so much that I came back to Milk Street and said, why don't we make them here?
0: You did, and we did. (laughs) Well, good. So we started with what kind of pork to use. Uh, We wanted something really fatty, so we obviously chose pork shoulder that has a lot of really nice flavor. Uh, The problem was it's really hard to slice pork shoulder thinly. It's so fatty. So we pop it in the freezer for about an hour, and that allows us to really get those nice thin slices. You want these to be really thin so that they cook in the amount of time on the grill.
3: So pork shoulder is usually barbecue material, but since you're slicing it so thin, you can grill it quickly?
0: That's right. It takes only about 15 minutes.
3: So a marinade, I assume, is coming up?
0: It does. Uh, So it sits in a marinade of garlic, cilantro, soy sauce, fish sauce. In Thailand, they use palm sugar, which is hard to find here, so we substituted dark brown sugar. It needs to be marinated for a minimum of two hours. But you can do it up to 12 hours. So, this is something great to do ahead of time and then grill it right before you're gonna eat it.
3: Now, I was promised coconut milk Mm -hmm. somewhere where is that just a side a glass of coconut milk or do you actually use it in the cooking
0: it's a really cool idea so what we do is we put the skewers on the grill they get a little bit of char and then we brush it with the coconut milk and what that does is add a lot of really cool flavor but it also softens up the meat a little so Hmm. when you get that flavor of the char you don't get that kind of hard crunchy part it's really nice and soft still and tender but has all of that coconut flavor too
3: So I assume there's something spicy coming.
0: You can't have a skewer without dipping sauce, and our recipe is no exception. So this is a chili lime dipping sauce, so it's really sweet and sour, but also has a lot of heat to it. Really amps up the flavor.
3: So a little bit of prep make ahead, but then quick cooking, nice spicy sauce at the end. So Thai grilled pork skewers in Boston as well as in Thailand. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. You can get this recipe for Thai grilled pork skewers at 177milkstreet.com.
3: This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up, Dan Pashman tries to teach me how to love buffets. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is in fact a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for Sarah Malt and I to answer a few more of your culinary questions.
7: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
0: Amanda Ruth.
7: Hi, Amanda. Where are you calling from?
0: Landon, Pennsylvania.
7: What can we do for you today?
0: Well, I have a question. Um, Whenever I use canned chickpea beans, such as like in your Punjabi recipe, I feel the need to squeeze off the outer skin prior to putting it in the pot
7: because like the skin is kind of loose already, and I don't like that floating in my final dish. So I was wondering, is this a normal process or am I messing up the flavor of the
3: dish? If you want to know how old somebody is, you ask them if they (laughs) remove the outer skin in their chickpeas because I'm old (laughs) enough not to care. I just do not (laughs) care. I make hummus without doing it. I never bother. When you cook chickpeas, if you cook them with some baking soda in the water and you've soaked them overnight, I know you're talking about Mm -hmm. canned, they will kind of fall off on their own anyway. But Mm -hmm. I would say this is a matter of personal preference. This is definitely your press. I I don't have enough years left to worry about skins on chicken. I have too
8: much time on my hands.
7: (laughs) No, no, this is what you care about. Yeah, you can do it. You're not messing up the recipe by doing it, you're just taking a little more time. And if you're happy doing that, you should do it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I will keep on. Squeeze in then. <laughs> yeah, squeeze away.
3: Or now, is this because you you don't like the way it looks, or you don't like it? Just looks, feels gross. The skins.
8: Yeah, it just kind of looks gross yeah. to have like
7: just like that skin. And I only see it when it's canned chickpeas. When I start with the dry ones, I don't usually have a problem with it. But just the canned ones, they're already kind of loose,
8: so it just kind of bothers me a little right.
7: bit. Again, the baking soda method, toss the canned, drained chickpeas with some baking soda and warm them in the microwave briefly. And then you, you can roll them in a towel and the skin should come off.
3: Well, you got to rinse them in water. Yes. After you have to heat them. Okay. It's like hazelnuts, the other bane of my existence. I know. Is mm-hmm. you use, a, you use yeah. big kitchen towels. You put the kitchen towel down, put the hazelnuts or the chickpeas on it, cover it and just roll it back and forth. And that'll get rid of most of them.
7: Okay. I'll yeah. try that next time. Sure. Okay. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for calling. Oh, yes. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
3: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Give us a ring anytime at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Alan. How are you? Where are you calling from?
8: I'm calling from well, I'm near Philadelphia right now.
3: Okay, can we help you?
2: I hope so. Uh, lately, I've been making you know making my own cookies, and sometimes I get an idea for flavor that I particularly you know want to see in a cookie. And this time, I'm just not getting there. What I want is to make a pistachio cookie with the kind of the, like a peanut butter cookie, you know, with that much flavor. And I thought this should be easy: take peanut butter cookie recipe. Grind up some pistachios and substitute, and you're done, right? And the flavor just does not come through after baking, and I don't know why. I've tried adding some serious amounts of, you know, pistachio extract to the batter, to the icing applied after the batter. I've tried adding pistachios themselves to a kind of a bland cookie recipe, and it never happens. Why is the pistachio flavor so um, elusive? So shy, yeah. <laughs>
3: Well, pistachios don't have as much flavor as peanuts. I mean, if, if you ever had a peanut butter ice cream, it's just packed with flavor. And if you have pistachio ice cream or gelato in Italy, it's green, <laughs> but it's artificially flavored <laughs> because pistachios don't have a lot of flavor.
7: There's a company called Turangel, T-O-U-R-A-N-G-E-L-L-E, and they, they're from France, and they sell um, toasted nut oils. And one Mm. of the ones that I love is toasted pistachio oil.
3: It's probably a fairly expensive proposition for a big batch of pistachio cookies, you think?
7: No, I don't think so. It's really strong. It's like toasted sesame oil. Hmm. So a little goes a long way. That's a good idea. I love it. Either Chris or Alan, have you had toasted pumpkin seed oil?
2: Mm -hmm. I have Which is
7: delicious in salads, although very strong. But... This is similar in that it's sort of essence of pistachio and it's I well, think there's it's another
3: great. product we just tasted in Milk Street that's going in our store soon. it was a pistachio cream. And it was sort of like almond butter. Yeah. And, but it was pistachio. It was a very dark green. And I would have eaten the whole jar <laughs> if they it let pistachio-y? me. Was it
7: pistachio y?
3: Oh yeah. There's that's another a thing thought. to look at if you get pistachio cream. But to go back to your initial question, if you toasted or roasted the pistachios first And then maybe even ground them to make a flour out of it as part of the cookie. That would be one thing you could do. Substitute some of the all-purpose flour with a a homemade pistachio Mm. flour. But just adding some chopped up pistachios isn't going to do very much.
7: Try the soil. It's also going to be delicious in a green salad or, you know, with cheese. It's just wonderful. And it's a great company. Tour Okay, great. That
8: sounds good. Well, i got a few more things to try. Well, you
7: know what, Alan, please... Will you get back to us and let us know how it goes? Okay,
3: sure. We always like to know. And send us a tin of the cookies. Yeah, well,
7: you're, you're that's fine. to completely <laughs> <Please>. acceptable. Alan, <laughs> thank you for calling. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Take care.
3: I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up, it's regular contributor and troublemaker, Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? I'm doing
1: all right, Chris. How have you been? I'm good. You know, I'm always hesitant to ask, what do you have for me this week? Are you a, uh, a big fan of buffets, Chris? I loathe buffets. That's exactly what I expected you to say. Is that a result of your puritanical New England upbringing? Well, there are two reasons. Uh, the, the reason that I would put forth publicly is that it
3: is like a swimming pool. You know, it's excess, excessive display of wealth and food. The real reason is I can't ever make up my mind And so I always make terrible choices and end up depressed at the end of the meal. That's the real reason.
1: (laughs) Well, that's great, Chris, because I am here to help you. I'm going to help you learn to love buffets. We are going to talk today about proper buffet strategy, how to approach a buffet to get your money's worth, to get deliciousness, and to not feel incredibly gross, and or like you've been ripped off. Okay. Step one is what? One of the most valuable lessons my mother ever taught me in life, survey the entire buffet before you start taking anything. Okay? That's the first thing. Now, keep in mind that the buffet has been designed to trip you up. It has been designed to make as much money as possible off of you by getting you to spend as much money while eating the cheapest food possible. The first few things right next to the plates are going to be the cheapest filler, the rolls, the giant tub of romaine lettuce, um, the, the heaping barrel of rice. Now, Look, if you if you want rice, fine, like get what you want. But just just be aware, you know, just think about what you're doing and, and survey all the options. The first time through what you want to do is take little bits of a lot of different things. This is your your sampler course. Oh, that's a good idea. You don't want to waste, like, you know, you may have to chuck one or two things, but we don't we're, we don't want to be excessive in food waste. And so don't take tons of anything until you're sure that you like it. Take little bits of a lot of different things. You bring it back, you snack, you taste, you sample, you pick what are the best things here. Here are my two problems. One is the most expensive
3: food protein isn't necessarily the best, right? In other words, if you just go for for dollar value, you may not be getting the best thing they serve. And the second thing, the real problem, I think, is when the Jello salad is next to the chicken teriyaki on your plate. It encourages unwanted bedfellows. <laughs> I, I think you have to choose foods that,
1: in aggregate, play well together. Is that a problem? No, I, I think you're 100% right. I think that's a very astute observation. Yes, I I think that, that even when you're picking your sampler course, yes, you need to think about what goes together on the plate, what's going to go together in your stomach, what, what might go well one bite after another. Right. But but no, I want to be clear. I'm not saying you should just go for the high dollar value items simply to get your money's worth. Like The goal of any meal is is to seek pleasure. So you should enjoy it, and if what makes you happiest in the world is a giant bowl of white rice and romaine lettuce, then that's what you should eat. But you probably shouldn't be paying $40 a person or whatever it costs at a expensive buffet to eat that. Like, just go and make that at home for 50 cents. What if there's 20 things in the
3: buffet and one of them is spectacular? Okay. Should you just eat the best thing there and not try to eat the eight pretty good things? I mean, should you focus on one or two dishes if it turns out in your sampler those
1: are the best? Yeah. I mean, I, I you eat what's going to make you happy. But just don't, you know, especially when you see so much food, I think some of us can get what well, the term is flummoxed by the paradox of choice. We all think we want more options in life. But actually, there's a lot of research that shows that most of us don't. And we like when other people make decisions for us, which is why buffets can feel overwhelming. And so you grab your plate and you feel overwhelmed and you just start taking the first foods that are in front of you. And pretty soon you end up with a plate. You're like, what is this? It's not even really what I wanted. And it's not even like the special foods here. And so you just need to maybe, maybe just go sit in the corner, do some breathing exercises, meditate a little bit. That's totally normal behavior at a buffet. And, you know, just gather yourself, gather your wits. And then you go back in a nice, relaxed—you know, maybe you sit for a minute. Don't run to the buffet right away. Sit for a minute. Order a drink. Have a couple of sips of your drink. Get mentally prepared because you are about to face a great challenge. I, I think a great strategy would be to stand at the carving
3: station for 10 minutes with your plate outstretched, just waiting until t- you get <laughs>
1: a pound of meat, and then you could go sit yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll also notice, you know, the carving station is never first. It's always down in the middle. So, so they, b- b- half the people, by the time they get there, their plate's are already full. Well, the other thing is they only have one person carving, and you have to wait in line for that. That's exactly right. They don't want that carving station to move too fast.
3: Clearly, you've thought this through. Before we go, uh, y- y- your best experience at a buffet was?
1: Have you ever heard of the Nordic Lodge Giant Viking Lobster Buffet? <laughs> no. <laughs> they have all-you-can-eat lobster. So I ate, I think, like four lobsters, and then I had a giant ice cream sundae, and then just for good measure, one more lobster. That was a great day. <laughs> what well, wasn't a great night, but it <laughs> was a great day. <laughs> Dan Pashman,
3: advice on uh, how to beat the odds at your local buffet. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Take care. That was Dan Pashman of The Sporkful. Dan Pashman talks about his strategy for optimizing the buffet experience, which brings me to the topic of choice. The buffet is the culinary world version of choice, otherwise known as free will. And here in America, free will is the preferred state of being. Now, the kitchen used to be the place where we transform what little we had into an abundant life. The culinary rule was rather simple. Start with a little and turn it into a lot. Today, maybe we have it backwards. We start with so much, but end up with so little. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, watch our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, of course, for listening.
0: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive Producer Melissa Baldino. Senior Audio Editor Melissa Allison. Producer Annie Sinsava. Associate Producer Jackie Nowak. Production Assistant Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior Audio Engineer Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by 2 Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.